Since the 1950s, our nation has been experiencing an unraveling of civic bonds. Americans attend fewer club meetings. We have fewer dinner parties. We eat dinner together as a family less, if we do at all. We are much less connected to our neighbors. Maybe 20 years ago or so, these old-fashioned neighborhoods began springing up across the country. There's one not far from Murray Road. You go there, and the houses are all new, but they're built as if they had been built about 120 years or so ago. They're close together, big front porches where you can sit. The houses are up close to the sidewalk, which runs in front, so people are walking by. You're sitting out on the porch and encouraging people to communicate and interact as a community. And this was done in response to the the distance that people felt developing in the world around them. We are disconnected from political parties. We are more skeptical of institutions in general. According to Gallup, Americans' confidence in institutions, be it political, media, religious, legal, medical, corporate, our confidence in these institutions is at historic lows. Only the military, police, and small businesses retain the strong confidence of over 50% of Americans. So as a culture, we have been losing faith in institutions. And what is an institution but a body? A body designed to promote some objective. The bodies that used to bring and bond citizens together, because they're neglected, because people are not a part of them anymore, because they don't trust them anymore, don't bring people together anymore. And just as an aside, I'm sorry to say that this has been observed to be a characteristic of a pre-totalitarian culture. We'll see if we break history there. Radical individualism has taken hold in our culture. We spend much more time watching TV, cocooning on the Internet. Even when I was in college in the early and mid-90s, they were already talking about the quote-unquote digital cocoon. What was that? Well, even then, you could sit in your house with your remote here, the television there, your computer here. You could surf online. You could communicate with people on the phone. You didn't have to get up to interact. You could just have your own little world here. The result of all of this... The results of all of this are beginning to reveal themselves. We were not built to live this way. Think of it. Until the past 50 years or so, not even that much, humanity has never lived like that. We were not built to live this way. People now feel more anxious. They feel more vulnerable. They feel more isolated. And despite being more connected by through social media, quote unquote, Millennials and members of Generation Z register much higher rates of loneliness than do older Americans. Facebook is no substitute for real interaction. What's all this have to do with spiritual things? The Barna Group put out a book in 2014, so almost 10 years ago now, entitled Churchless, Understanding Today's Unchurched and How to Connect with Them. And they wrote this. A rapidly expanding segment of the population is questioning the purpose and value of both churches and church engagement. Billions of citizens are exercising their freedom of choice and they are disassociating from institutions and traditions of all kinds, including religious assemblies. So as our culture has been devaluing bodies, it has devalued the body. I don't need church. I don't need to go to church. 
I don't need a religious institution. I certainly don't need organized religion. I'm spiritual. I want a relationship, not religion. I don't need church. So is that true? Well, we know the answer, but let's contemplate it anyway this afternoon. What are the benefits of being with the brethren? And is it worth it? Is it worth it? Is it worth the commitment? Is it worth the sacrifice? Well, think for just a moment how Jesus views the church. The church is so important to Jesus that he came to earth to build it. He went to the cross to buy it. He's going to return to save it. And the scriptures promise salvation only to those in the church. Paul said of his own life before he became a Christian, Galatians 1.13, he says, I persecuted the church of God beyond measure. But when Jesus met him on the road to Damascus, what did he say? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? At the judgment, Jesus will say to the righteous, I say to you in as much as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Well, who are Jesus' brethren? Matthew twelve fifty, Jesus tells us, whoever does the will of God is my father. Will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. The church are his brethren. Hebrews two eleven. And however you treat them, Jesus says, you're doing it to me. First Corinthians eight twelve. when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. So when it comes to the church, it's personal for Jesus. Jesus sits at the right hand of the father. But when Stephen, one of his brethren, was about to be his first martyr, what did Stephen say in Acts 7, 55? He gazed into heaven and saw Jesus, what? Standing. The only time where Jesus is said to be standing at the right hand. All the other times it's sitting. What's going on? Let's say you're sitting in your living room. Your children, your grandchildren are playing there in the living room floor. And someone comes in with the obvious intention of hurting your children. What are you going to do? I'm going to stand up. That's not all I'm going to do. If we care about Jesus, we must reckon with these realities. You can't love the head without loving his body. You can't love the king without loving his kingdom. You cannot have one without the other. Inasmuch as you do it to one of his, you do it to him. i got to start skipping stuff right now. So how did the first century Christians who knew the value of the church, who were part of the church, how did they treat the church? How did they engage with the church? How often did they gather? For what activities did they gather? What purposes did their gathering serve? What do we take from all of this? Let's start with how often they gathered. How often did they gather? How often did they get together? Well, sometimes daily, that's right. In Acts chapter 2, we learned that those early Christians, Acts 2.46, they were continuing daily with one accord in the temple. We know the churches of Galatia, the church of Corinth, the church of Troas. These congregations were meeting every first day of the week. But they weren't just meeting every first day of the week. They were meeting daily in some cases. Hebrews 3.13 says, exhort one another daily. Now, does it take the congregation getting together to exhort one another? No. There only need to be two. But there was definite association. When Peter was scheduled to be executed and he was miraculously saved, he goes to Mary's house and what does he find? The brethren gathered together praying, Acts 12, 12. When Paul and Barnabas returned from their first journey to Antioch in Acts 14, 27, it says when they had come, they gathered the church together. This doesn't say anything about being the Lord's day. They're back from their work. The church was gathered together so they could report what they'd been doing, what God had done through them. When Paul arrived in Jerusalem in Acts 21, 22, the Jerusalem elders said to him, what then? The assembly must meet. 
for they will hear that you have come. In Acts 4, we see brethren getting together to pray. In Acts 15, we see them getting together to deal with church issues and doctrine. In Acts 16, we see Paul getting together with the church of Philippi before he leaves. And who knows when he'll see them next. In 1 Corinthians 11, we see the church gathering for purposes other than the Sunday assembly. For prayer and for prophesying. The bottom line for this particular point of the lesson is this. The brethren were getting together at various times. They were interacting with each other formally and informally, planned and impromptu, large and small groups, Sundays, weekdays. Sunday was the starting point. It was not the end point. What did they do when they got together? We've already touched on that some. They took the the Lord's Supper on Sundays. They came together for reading. Paul told Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.13, till I come, give attention to reading. And he meant public reading of Scripture there. There's multiple, and there's, we can demonstrate that because that Greek word appears only two other times, and in both cases, it's public reading. I think public reading of Scripture is one of the most underrated and undervalued aspects of our services. Um, not everybody's an auditory learner, so it's not going to affect everybody the same way, but Revelation 1, verse 3 says this, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. A passage read well. And I would submit to you at length. I think scripture reading to some degree is one of those things you really kind of have to get into. Some of us are used to only hearing a 10 verse section read or maybe one chapter read. But it almost takes a little while to get into it. Just sit down and let someone who's prepared it well and can read it with appropriate emphasis and understanding get up there and read it for 30 minutes. And if you've done that, you know what I'm talking about. Seven minutes in, 10 minutes in, 15 minutes in, suddenly you start seeing the flow of what Paul's saying in a way you will never see in a verse-by-verse study on a Sunday morning. Suddenly you start getting a more holistic and high-level view of the book than you ever got through studies of the kinds we normally engage in. They came together for reading, as should we. They came together for exhortation. 1 Timothy 4, verse 13. What's exhortation? It's urging. It's encouraging. Yes, we need teaching, but sometimes we need to be urged to do what we know. Somebody once said, to edify is to build up, to comfort is to cheer up, to exhort is to stir up, and do it so much more as you see the day approaching, Hebrews 10.25. They came together for teaching, till I come, Paul told Timothy, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine, that's teaching, 1 Timothy 4.13. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, they cut their teeth on teaching. When I think of the responsibilities of the male members of the church. Those who are in leadership positions for one, the church comes together for teaching. Those who are in leadership positions, decision-making positions, we need to make sure that those who are given the enormous responsibility of teaching are able and willing to fulfill that function. And they need to be both. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers. Mutual ministry does not mean every man ministry at everything. And there are gradations. One brother may not be suited well, and he may be the first one to tell you for a 30-minute, 40-minute class or sermon. But he might be wonderful at a 10-minute devotional. We need to get a little more imaginative, look at people's skill sets and their willingness and what they do well at, and we can diversify and we can suit service to their gifts. Make sure our lessons are well prepared, those of us who are doing it. It's been said that sometimes we're the best argument against mutual edification. Who here? Don't give me a show of hands. Just a question. But who here 
has had somebody you know and you want to invite them to services and you whip out the program and you decide when you're going to invite them. And is that just because you're hoity-toity and look down the nose at the brethren? No, sometimes it's straight, quite frankly, I don't want them to visit when brother so-and-so because he doesn't come prepared. He's all over the map and it's going to make the church look bad and they may never come back. Well, shame on that brother for putting his other brethren in that situation and for crippling the evangelism of the church. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. The lessons we prepare should reflect those verses that we have taken them to heart. If I've been lazy and I don't prepare, I need to repent and I need to change. Brother Bill Ford, I'm going to brag on him. He would never want me. He would never have asked me to say this. He might not like it if he hears that I said it, but I would say it anyway. We were in a small group at his house discussing personal evangelism. And he was talking about, you know, personal evangelism takes sacrifice. It takes work. And then he just mentioned in passing, and internally my jaw hit the floor. That in his past, and he's given an awful lot of sermons over the years, he's been known to spend 40 hours preparing for a sermon. This was a man who had a full-time job, who had a family. That's commitment. Do you have to spend 40 hours on your sermon? I'm not saying that. But hard preparation makes for easy, profitable listening. They gathered for fellowship, Acts 2.42. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. Now, fellowship can have multiple meanings in the Greek, and it has been suggested by some that what's meant there is a community of goods. In other words, the early church, we know, they would bring money, they would bring proceeds, they would bring things and lay them at the apostles' feet, and some have thought that's what Acts 242 is referring to. They came together to disperse those goods. And that is a possibility, but that is not the primary meaning of that word. And I was, I did find it interesting, I read a translator's note, there's a translation out there where the NET, the New English Translation, I'm not telling you that that's a translation you ought to go get, but it's an interesting translation. It's available free online. It comes with 60,000 notes, many of them the translator's notes, where they say, well, we've translated it this way, and here's why. And that's very interesting information to have sometimes. And they say concerning fellowship in Acts 2.42, in their opinion, fellowship here refers to close association involving mutual involvement and relationships. That's the primary meaning of that Greek word, koinonia and you know, the more I think about it, I, I'm inclined to think that is what is meant. That's what one of the reasons the early church came together for, to spend time with each other. The reason you're here today. Who we spend time with reflects what we value, and it impacts what we value. We are influenced by those we spend time with. We don't all need the same amount of interaction. There are some people who are not here this weekend, not because they're not committed Christians, but because getting in a room packed tight with all these people is just a little much for them. So be it. When I was younger, I was very judgmental about those who didn't go to meetings and things like that. Oh, well, you know, they're not committed. They're not really interested in the church. Well, that was a very dumb way of viewing things. It wasn't the case at all. But regardless of what kind of person you are, with only the rarest of exception, I think it is a true statement that there is in every heart a longing for belonging. Every me needs a we. And God has designed the church to meet that need. Exhort one another daily, Hebrews 3.13 says, Why? Lest any of you be hardened. Lest any of you be hardened. Interaction with other Christians in and out 
of the assembly provides a safeguard against impenitence. The Bible is telling me that being with you encourages me to repent. That is exactly what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Being around you and you being you. Have you had a situation like I'm about to describe? You've got something in your life that needs to be straightened out and you know it. And you're not dealing with it or haven't, you haven't yet dealt with it. And then you're around brother or sister so-and-so. And they're just talking. They have no idea what's going on in your life. They're just being them. And their very behavior and their very conversation condemns you. And like David, his heart smote him. That's one of my favorite King James expressions. His heart smote him. His heart was beating him up inside. And being with the brethren can help bring that about. Good examples of brethren speak to us. They call us and inspire us to be what we need to be. Personal knowledge is acquired through interaction. Meaningful interaction. Look, is it okay to talk about the royals if you're a glutton for punishment? Sure, and I'll do it. But let's talk about some other things. Let's talk about meaningful, important things. Let's have real interactions. It's appropriate, needful for some of you to know about some of my battles, my habits, my propensities, my sins, so that you can hold me accountable. And that accountability is not a harsh, tyrannical thing. It might be you coming up and giving me a hug. I love you. How's it going? Lack of personal open interaction is just downright dangerous. You need to have some of it somewhere in your life. Because when things stay in the dark, when sins stay in the dark, you know what they do? They're like mold. They grow. Bringing a sin into the light is one of the surest ways to kill it. And where do these kinds of conversations take place? Can they take place over the phone? Yes, and I hope they do. Can they take place at home and at the dinner, well, in the bedroom or with in a small group Bible study or a men's meeting or something informal? Absolutely. They also can and do take place here, don't they? They've been taking place this weekend. I've been part of some of them. They take place over here. They take place out in the parking lot. And if you want to avoid them, you skip services, you show up late, you leave early. There are health benefits to being a churchgoer. Gallup discovered that regular churchgoers experience more positive and fewer negative emotions than people who don't regularly attend church services. Comparing the life experiences of the unchurched with those of the actively churched reveals that churchgoers are less likely to be stressed. They are less likely to feel lonely. They are more likely to say they are happy, that they're making a positive difference in the world, that they have deep connections with their friends. Vanderbilt University put out some information in 2017 revealing that if you attend church services, it will increase your longevity. People who go to church, broadly speaking, compared to people who don't, live longer. In fact, if you're between the ages of 40 and 65, men and women alike, just by being a regular churchgoer, you reduce your risk of mortality by 55%. You can't even do that eating kale. That is incredible. We were built for interaction. They gathered together for prayer. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. I don't have a lot to say about that except this. What you do in your private prayer life will, in fact, will affect public prayers. And uh, I'm not a, I'm not the judge, and it's not my business to sit here and microanalyze, but occasionally I hear a public prayer and I think to myself, I don't know, but 
that sounds like the prayer of a brother who doesn't spend much time in private prayer. They came together for worship. I picked up a book. I don't remember the author's name. I didn't put it here in my notes. He's from the Kansas City area. It's called Prodigal Church. I'm not recommending the book. But he made this statement. He said, increasingly, you find people talking about the worship experience rather than about the worship service. Isn't that interesting? The worship experience is about who? It's about me. The worship service is about God. He writes, I'd long suspected the worship experience at our church was aimed more at the congregation's sense of excitement and engagement than at God's worthiness and exaltation. Certainly, he writes, there's nothing wrong with feeling good and celebrating God's character and work. But if the purpose of worship is to feel good, we stop worshiping God. We've heard this a bazillion times, but I'll go ahead and be the guy to say it the bazillionth and first. I didn't get anything out of service. I said that out in Indiana oh, back in April, and a brother came up to me and said, yeah, and the response I heard to that is, you didn't have anything to take home from service, but what did you bring with you to take it home in? Yeah, that was a good way to put it. Did you come with an open heart? Did you come looking for the best in your brother or sister and or what they were saying privately and what your brother was saying publicly? Did you come looking for that nugget? It's not about me. You know, why do you think idolatry was so attractive? You're the children of Israel... And they keep getting pulled into it. What made it so attractive? Well, you say, well, everybody else was doing it. Well, that was certainly part of it, but I'm not at all convinced that that was the main thing. What was it like to worship an idol? Well, it involved things we don't even want to talk about publicly. But it was all about fleshly indulgence. There was a message which made very few, if, if any, moral demands. There was stirring music. You go to Daniel 3 and Nebuchadnezzar lists all of those animals. That's the, that's the ancient praise band. And when they start playing, bow down and worship the idol. There were creature comforts. In Hosea chapter 4, verse 13, God says this of the idolaters. They offer sacrifices on the mountaintops. They burn incense on the hills, under oaks, poplars, and terebinths. They, they build their places of worship under these Beautiful giant trees. Why? Hosea 4.13. Because their shade is good. Man, if you're going to worship trees or worship brown trees, let's pick up something that's going to be nice. It's going to be comfortable. Idolatry was all about idolatry. It was about me. What can I get? I'm sure the name Francis Chan rings a bell for some. I'd like to read three paragraphs from a book he wrote. He wrote this. I asked my daughter how many kids would come to her birthday party if all we offered was cake. No games, no entertainment. They could come to the house to spend time with her and bring gifts to celebrate her, but we wouldn't have anything else for them. She thought for a minute and said, maybe just a couple. Then I asked her how many would come if I rented out Dave and Buster's. I'm guessing that's like a... Chuck E. Cheese's kind of thing. I, they don't have them in Kansas City that I know of. I asked her, how many would come if I rented out Dave and Buster's and I let them have unlimited tokens, food, and prizes? She laughed and said, confidently, the whole school would show up. <laughs> so let's say that for her birthday, I rent out the arcade and her whole school comes. They're all going nuts, having the time of their lives. Imagine if I pulled her aside during the party, put my arm around her and said, look at all the people who came to be with you. 
Would she actually believe those people were there because they love her and want to spend time with her? Or would my comment actually be insulting? Isn't this basically what we do with God? We have learned that we can fill church buildings if we bring in the right speaker or band. Make things exciting enough and people will come. We say, God, look how many people are coming because they love being with you. But do we really think God is fooled by this? Do we think God is pleased? He knows how many would show up if it was just him. He knows there might be only a few if all we offered was communion or prayer. Our services are kind of boring if you're looking for fun. Now, they can be very fun. I guess it depends on how you define fun. But if you know if you're looking for for self-gratification, if you're looking for entertainment, if you're looking for someone just to make you feel good, then church as God designed it isn't for you. But we want, of course, be interested in what God has designed. Worship is about God. It's not about me. And as I begin to close, to be a Christian, yes, there's some self-interest, isn't there? I want to be with the Lord. I want to go to heaven. And that's perfectly appropriate. But if I am a Christian, my life is ultimately not about me. To be a Christian is to be a sacrifice. Being a member of the kingdom involves a lot of receiving. You receive salvation. You receive good teaching. You receive spiritual support, emotional support, if needed, financial support. There's an extended family, fellowship, and friendship coming with that. Jesus said in Mark 10, 40, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands you receive. And he's talking about the very thing some of us have experienced here. Many of us in this room stayed at somebody else's house last night. You realize how nuts that seems to people who've not grown up around the church? Some of you have had those conversations. So you're... You're going to this thing and you're staying at a person's house that you don't know. And there are some who've even grown up in the church, but maybe are not used to coming to meetings. Maybe that's not been the culture in their peculiar neck of the woods. And it might even keep them from coming to meetings because the idea is like, what? But this is what Jesus was talking about. I have been coast to coast. I have been on the other side of the planet. I have, and I'm right at home. And I've got fathers who aren't my father. And I've got mothers who aren't my mother. Have you ever noticed when Paul talks about his mother in Romans 16? That's not his mother by blood. He inherited a whole family, as have you in this room. And that's a blessing, but it is more blessed to give than to receive, as Wade pointed out. I'm going to say a few things on that now as I am, in fact, closing. Membership in the kingdom is not a passive experience. It's not like watching TV or a movie. Eric Rogers told me years ago, he said, if you're ever in a movie theater, sometimes during the movie, just turn around and look behind you. He goes, you'll see everybody doing this. <laughs> and that may be. Because it's passive. You just sit there and you take in. You take in. God is not looking for a few good pew potatoes. In Isaiah chapter 30, verse 7, in the King James, it says of the Egyptians that their strength is to sit still. Jesus did not die for you and save you and make all these promises to you so that you could just come and be a taker all the time. 
Membership in the kingdom involves actively giving, giving honor to our leaders. Hebrews 13, 17, obey those who rule over you and be submissive. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive. Aha, but I don't like the decision the elders made. Okay. I mean, anybody in this room who's been a Christian for more than 20 years, I am confident has been in a congregation where the elders made a decision that you were like, why did they do that? Or that's not how I would have done it. I won't ask for a show of hands. We don't need to go there. But we all know it's true. When your mom and dad told you to do something and you didn't like doing it, if things were operating in the home as they should have, they told you to do something and you didn't like doing it, what did you do? You did it. Children, obey your parents. Obey those who rule over you. Let's remember what Wade told us. I mean, the thing they're sacrificing, they're going to have to stand before the Lord and explain your situation. What they did, perhaps, for you. Be a peacemaker. I noticed in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13, time doesn't permit me to read it, but he talks about how we need to highly esteem those who are in leadership positions among us, and then he closes it with, be at peace among yourselves. Many elderships would be would say a hearty amen to this truth. If the congregation over which they're seeking, over which they're over the overseeing, if the brethren would just be at peace among themselves, that would make their life so much easier. It's one of the greatest pieces of honor we can give them. Give honor to the leaders, give of ourselves. First Timothy, first Peter, four ten, as each one has received a gift, minister it to who? To one another. Play your part in the work and life of your local congregation. Find your place and dive in. Oh, but John, I've got so many things on my plate right now, or it just doesn't seem like the right time. Haggai 1, 4 and 5, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses in this temple to lie in ruins? Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Now is the accepted time. Something is better than nothing. Do what you can. What can I do? I don't have the talents that some of these other people seem to have. Whoa, 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 whoa. There are all different kinds of talents. There are all different kinds of talents. And most talents have a way that they can be used. If not all talents have a way they can be used for God's purposes. Well, my, my contribution seems so insignificant. Stop the comparison. Stop it. And I come from somebody who's really good at comparing. Okay? But what are we told in 2 Corinthians? Those who compare themselves among themselves are not wise. Fools. It's a foolish thing, at least. It's a foolish thing to sit there and compare yourself to others, your contributions to theirs. And it's irrelevant. Do what you can. A little boy gave two fish and five loaves of bread, and the Lord took that and fed 5,000 men plus women and children. The seven loaves were given in the feeding of the 4,000, and the look what the Lord did with it. What can the Lord do with what you give? What's your piece of bread? This stuff's going on recording, so I have to decide whether or not I want to say what I'm about to say. But I know all about that comparing, comparing stuff. And when I'm comparing, number one, I'm thinking about me. Once again, it's all about me. Oh, I wish I could do what he could. Me, 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 me. Why can't I? Me, me. Get over yourself, John. Think about the kingdom. What can be done for the kingdom in my sector? What can I do? And be thankful I can do it. 
taking, making the decision to thank God, Lord, thank you that I can do this. Thank you for the ability to do this. Never mind other people. The change of perspective. Choose an area for growth this week. Choose an area for growth this week and a way of serving and make that your focus for the next few months, for the next year. What can you do in the next few months that you have not yet done? Is it upping the ante on something you already do? Is it developing over in another way? Is it simple things? Maybe forcing yourself to be a little more interpersonal and go visit people, give make phone calls you wouldn't have ordinarily done. But what can you do starting this week to push back the borders of Zion? Christ died for you. Live for him. He sacrificed for you. Sacrifice for him. Paul said he was willing to spend and be spent for the souls of the brethren. Seek first the kingdom of God. If we'll do it, brethren, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus.